and welcome to Breaking Protocol. I am your host, Bob Sadawake. Today, my guest is Chris Hollins, a Houston-based attorney and fifth-generation Texan. Chris developed a commitment to public service through the selfless example of his parents and their devotion for improving the lives of others. After graduating from Hightower High School in Missouri City, Texas, Chris earned a Bachelor of Arts degree with Phi Beta Kappa honors from Morehouse College. He then completed a joint program with Yale Law School and Harvard Business School, earning both his Juris Doctor and Master of Business Administration degrees. Chris represented the Obama administration as a staff member in the White House Office of Presidential Personnel. Chris assumes his new role as the Harris County Clerk, responsible for overseeing the July primaries and November general elections. Welcome to Breaking Protocol. Hey, Bob. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. How's everything going with you today? It's going well. It's so nice to have you. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're obviously extraordinarily busy these days, but before we jump into the the really meat of things, tell us a little bit about your history, a little bit about your background. I mean, we know that you know, you're a fifth-generation Texan. You are, uh, I would say, chin-deep in the political arena. So give us a little bit of since college, how you really got there and what's driven that passion in you. Absolutely. I mean, I think, honestly, it starts from, from childhood. was raised in Southwest Houston, as you mentioned. I'm a fifth-generation Texan. I'm proud of that. Uh, go Astros. Grew up in Southwest Houston. Uh, my father, George, was a Houston Police Department officer. Uh, he served for 34 years, retired just a couple of years ago. And my mom, Christy, she balanced a career as a secretary uh, with raising myself, my two sisters, and more than 20 foster children. You know, my parents raised us as very strong Christians. Uh, as a kid, I was probably in church, you know, twice on Sunday and, you know, three or four more times over the rest of the week. And so, you know, public service has been something that I've seen. How do I improve the world around me? How do I support others? That's been something that's that's been ingrained in me from, from a very young age. Uh, I graduated from Hightower High School in Missouri City. We moved out to Missouri City when I was in high school. And then from there, went on to Morehouse College. Uh, Morehouse is in Atlanta. A lot of people to this day still haven't heard of it. But, you know, it's known for being the alma mater of Martin Luther King Jr. And Morehouse uh, you know, is a traditional historically black university. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. It's an HBCU. It's an all, it's a men's HBCU. The only, you know, such, you know, HBCU in the country, you know, there, that experience really changed my life and, and propelled me even further, you know, towards, you know, the work that I'm doing today, uh, being in a place where, you know, somebody like Martin Luther King, but so many others, uh, who have come along and changed the course of history for the better. Also introducing me to a huge array of diversity. What I mean is that I truly saw diversity of what it means to be different human beings. We all had, you know, a similar pigmentation, but I saw, you know, rich folks, poor folks, people from private school, people from public school, people from the West Coast, the East Coast, uh, you know, straight, gay, etc., as college tends to do, exposed me to so many different personality types that I hadn't been familiar with 
growing up in Southwest Houston or, you know, in, you know, in the suburbs of Houston. And so, you know, the, the network that I built there, not only the you know, brotherhood at Morehouse, but we have, you know, Spelman College uh, and all women's HBC right across the street, Clark Atlanta University, uh, right around another corner uh, that comprised the Atlanta University Center. So even though you came from a large metropolitan area like Houston, it was really Atlanta that exposed you to such a broad, diverse group of Americans, if you will. And I would say Morehouse College and the Atlanta University Center in particular. You know, Houston is the most diverse city in the country. If not, it's, it's, a, it's a close hair, you know, top two. But what you see as a kid isn't always the same. Uh, you know, I grew up in a, in a, a neighborhood in, in southwest Houston, didn't really move outside of that neighborhood. Um, my church was pretty diverse. I, I attended Braisewood Assembly of God when I was younger. I want to say there were 47 nationalities or some odd represented in our, our church. And so I did see some diversity there. I really want to know how one accomplishes getting a law degree and a master's degree in business from Harvard and Yale simultaneously. How does one go about doing that? When I was in law school, I had I had worked as a consultant in between undergrad and law school. And so I had been exposed a ton to the business world and the opportunities that existed out there uh, in business. In undergrad, I was political science pre-law. And so that exposure was not nearly uh, as significant. But I learned a lot as, as a consultant and was really interested in just this, just a broad array of, of what I could do with my life, with my career. And so, you know, law was still of prime importance to me. But I said, you know, why don't I, you know, tack this thing on? I think going to business school in general, but specifically uh, a storied business school like Harvard, I'd learn a lot. I'd meet a lot of really interesting people. I didn't go too deep into the, the Morehouse and Spelman and Atlanta University piece, but I think the common denominator of all these different places and and the things that I cherish the most about them are, are the people. Well, it's quite an achievement, and and we would like to congratulate you on that. Uh, it is it's certainly not something that everybody can tack to their resume, so to speak. So, congratulations. You know, you went, you you've accomplished all these extraordinary academic experiences, and you launched that into what I would call, at this stage of your career, a very significant leadership role in. Texas politics. Yes, uh, I was elected in 2018 to be the finance chair of the party. Uh, the official title is vice chair for finance, but the sort of the colloquial term is the finance chair of the party. But I was elected in 2018 for a four-year term to serve until summer of 22, uh, and I intend to fulfill that role. And as of June 1st, I will be stepping back and focusing 100% on the role of of Harris County Clerk. You know, through. November of this year, but but I will stay you know officially in the post with the party. So let's talk a little bit about that role in the Texas Democratic Party and Democratic politics in Texas as a whole. Until really, I would say this year, uh, the midterms, maybe the midterm elections that we just experienced, and then going into this election cycle of 2020, mm -hmm. Texas Democrats were not a notable term nationally, but they have. They have come on the national stage. They have brought that platform forward. Tell us a little bit about your work with them and how that has changed, where Texas is starting to 
be looked at nationally by other Democrats around the country? Yeah, no. Well, I'll, I'll tell you that um, as election results have been rolling in over the last you know few years, and I think as early as uh, 2016, which I think a lot of us remember where we were, you know, in November of 2016. But in you know somewhere, in, you know, in a in a building in Austin, Texas, over either the next day or those coming days. Manny Garcia and Cliff Walker were going through uh, election results and saw a lot of really positive data. They said, look, we we did better than we have ever. You know, in 2012, a very popular president named Barack Obama lost Texas by 16 points. Uh, you fast forward to 2016. Again, we all know the, the national result. Uh, but in Texas, Hillary lost to Donald Trump by nine points. And so you have, you know, a state like Ohio, which everyone, you know, on the, the national scene or around the political water cooler, if you will, says oh, Ohio is a swing state. You know, so goes Ohio, so goes the nation, bellwether, et cetera. But you see, as early as 2016, statewide, Texas being swingier than a state like Ohio. Um, and not only did, did you see that that trend at the state level, but you know, again, pockets in the in suburbs, different parts of uh, of, of of our large counties and and all around the state, you saw voter outcomes changing just a little bit. You know, but for skilled eyes like Cliff and Manny, they said this is you know change is coming, and so work started then, or let me say continued then with the party to to bring that to life, to make sure that folks knew about this, folks were aware. Um, and that, you know, at the, the grassroots level and the electoral level, people were getting excited, getting energized and getting activated. And so you fast forward to 2018 and, you know, you have a guy named Beto O'Rourke. Pretty, yeah, I was pretty- just going to ask you about that. I mean, how much credit, how much credit do you think the Texas Democratic Party, you know, convey to Beto O'Rourke for the, you know, the motivation of Texas Democrats, if you will? Yeah, so Congressman O'Rourke uh, is a is a fantastic guy, a very inspiring leader. Uh, you know, someone who who I look up to personally, and he certainly energized Democrats in 2018. He probably energized Republicans too, to be frank. But but yeah, I mean, Beto was was a a true rock star in 2018, where I remember being up. I want to say in in D.C., but it was it was certainly a city outside of uh, Texas, and seeing people walking around with Beto shirts in 2018, like he was he was a a huge figure and and remains a huge figure. There was no doubt that he executed an incredible campaign. As someone who's experienced in the campaign arena, do you think there's anything he could have done different? Do you think there's anything that would have tipped the scale or did he just do everything right and it just wasn't his time? Well, I want to talk about that, but I, I but I want to say another piece about 2018 because there was there was the Beto phenomenon for sure. But again, if if, if you think about the changes in Texas that that Manny and Cliff and and uh, other folks were seeing as early as you know 2016 before, that all was independent of of, of Beto. Right. And so if you think about the four years between 2014 and 2018, 
uh, you saw 1.7 million new voters uh, registered in Texas. Now, just to give you an idea of magnitude, that number is the, the entire voting population of the state of New Mexico. And so in a four-year span, 2014 to 2018, an entire New Mexico worth of voters drops into Texas. And, you know, Texas becomes, you know, one of the fastest growing states. It's becoming one of the younger states. Houston, one of the younger cities. One of, Houston, we just talked about a moment ago, one of the most diverse cities. And so those people who are coming into Texas are voters that in large part are going to lean blue. And so what you saw, you know, in addition to Beto being fantastic, um, you, you combine two things. You combine the leadership of Donald Trump or lack thereof and, and people fleeing from that. And then you combine the natural changes that are happening in the state of Texas. I'll give you one more little tidbit about, about Texas. You look at the, the demographics uh, across the state of Texas. And of course, you know, no, nobody's a monolith. So just because you're, you're black or just because you're gay, just because you know, you're disabled or what have you, doesn't mean you're gonna vote a certain way. However, you look at the data across the country and based on some demographics, you can predict within a range what election outcomes are gonna be in most places. So you take the demographics of Texas, again, race, age, income and wealth, uh, disability status, LGBTQ status, these various demographics around our population. And you compare that to the other 49 states and how those voters would vote, you know, given, again, the, you know, the, the predictive nature of some of these things. And if you didn't know anything about Texas and you just ran the numbers, you would predict that Texas would be four points more blue than California. And I'm going to repeat that four points more blue than California. And so, you know, the, the people are here. Uh, what you hear a lot is Texas is not a red state. Texas is a non-voting state. But what we're seeing in 2018, what we're going to see in 22, uh, pardon me, in, in 2020 and further beyond is that is that voters are starting to wake up, become more energized and become more active. And how does the party get those voters to the polls? There is a, an entire sort of operational process from soup to nuts on on how not just the party, but how any candidate or any community organization would encourage people to get to the polls. Are there any initiatives that the Texas Democratic Party is taking at this time to ensure or increase voter participation? So, yes. <laughs> I'll give you two. <laughs> Something that you could share with us, I suppose. <laughs> oh, yeah. And none of the, you know, maybe they don't tell me the deepest secrets of the party, but from what I know, everything that I know is is public knowledge. Two, two big pieces, right? Um, one is just voter registration. If you're going to cast a vote, you need to be registered to vote, period. And so the, the, the Texas Democrat Party it has invested a lot and things that have changed under COVID in just reaching out to, to unregistered voters of all shapes and sizes and just encouraging people to register to vote. The program you know, is well beyond a million dollars in terms of the, the efforts that are focused just on voter registration. Uh, and so that's that's big. Now, you get into sort of the inside baseball of politics and, 
you know, unfortunately, we are in a very polarized state across this entire country. Uh, and it's and it's sort of gotten more and more intense uh, in recent years. And unfortunately, I expect that it'll be that way for, for a little bit longer. And so what, you, what used to be a fight for the middle, you know, how do I be, you know, become the most moderate Democrat or the most moderate Republican, it has now become more and more about base motivation and base turnout. And so if you want to turn out Democrats, if you want to turn out your base, that's going to likely vote for blue or on the other side, if you want to do that for Republican, you actually have to know who those people are. Okay, well, number one, they voted in a Democratic primary before. That's an easy indicator. But a lot of people don't vote in primaries. And so how do you do it beyond that? Well, folks use models, right? Again, understanding demographics and zip code and other things that we could figure out about you, wealth and income and so on and so forth. We identify the folks who are you know, most likely to be Democrats through a model. We've been using national models for quite some time. And what we found, and I don't think there's any secret here, is that the national models are quite poor uh, at their predictive ability of being conservative or progressive you know, in Texas. And I say in Texas in particular, because in other states, they tend to be quite predictive. And why are they quite predictive? Well, when you register, you register as a Republican or you register as a Democrat. And so it's pretty easy for the model to say, oh, I think that person who registered as a Democrat is a Democrat. We don't have that. Um, and then that the and because Texas was not a swing state for quite some time, I don't think the national modeling firms invested a ton into getting Texas right. So that makes your job more challenging here in Texas. And I'm assuming well, it, it did until the Texas Democratic Party created its own model in 2020. Well, there you go. There you go. So that is something that is unique to Texas. Absolutely. Uh, and created right in house, uh, led by uh, our analytics director, who is now, I believe, called our chief technology officer, uh, Lauren Pulley, who is a phenomenal mind uh, and who has built a very strong team of data and analytics professionals within. TDP. So let's discuss something that's unique to you. Something you're well prepared for is you are taking on a new role as the Harris County clerk. Now, what can voters in Harris County expect as you step into this new role? And are you going to institute any changes to the voting process? Is there anything that is going to be unique that you are going to bring to this new position? Thank you, Bob. And it's an honor to to grant you the first interview of uh, my term as Harris County clerk. Stepping into this role, you know, the, the clerk's job is to serve the citizens of Harris County and to document some of the most important life events of the residents of Harris County. So that includes birth certificates and death certificates, marriage licenses, real property records, uh, and a number of court records as well as uh, supporting the commissioner's court and all the important work that they do. But one of the most critical roles of the, of the Harris County Clerk's Office, and certainly the most important of 2020, is administering the elections. You know, as Harris County Clerk, in the role as election administrator for the third largest county in the country with 4.7 million residents, it's going to be our job to ensure that that most fundamental right in American democracy, the right to vote, that Harris County residents can exercise that right safely uh, in the midst of COVID-19, 
uh, conveniently that they can access, uh, whether it's vote by mail ballots or physical locations, and securely with the comfort of uh, comfort and peace of mind uh, that their vote's going to be counted. So you know, Chris, we were we were talking about the Texas Democratic Party and preparing for the election, the impending election coming up, specifically November. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I feel is going to make your job maybe a bit more challenging as the new Harris County clerk is the recent Supreme Court ruling. Uh, the Supreme Court of Texas, that is, has ruled that the lack of immunity to the coronavirus is not a legal reason to request a mail-in ballot in Texas as defined by the election code. Now, you're you're an attorney by background, so you have a a basic understanding of the law, and mm-hmm. you're now overseeing elections in Harris County. So what's your response to this Supreme Court ruling, and how are you going to prepare the citizens of Harris County to vote by mail as things stand today? Yeah, so I've read the holding, and I've conferred with the Harris County Attorney's Office on, on what it truly means. Um, and though, you know, while what you said was somewhat accurate, I want to just try and explain it uh, as I understand it now. Sure. So the Texas Supreme Court ruled that a lack of immunity to COVID may be considered as a factor in determining whether the overall health of the voter could be endangered, but it can't be the sole factor. So just fear of COVID isn't enough. But it's the responsibility of the voter to make this determination about her, his or her own health. And my office does not have the authority to question that. So if the voter fills out a vote by mail application and indicates one of those four grounds under which he or she would be eligible to, to vote uh, by mail, the clerk's office must accept that application as is, and we must send that voter a ballot. As you have previously stated in our conversation, we talked about voter fraud a bit. And would you be concerned that the Supreme Court ruling could lead to fraudulent votes based on people determining a disability that could be questioned? There are states, uh, both Republican and Democratic states, that vote completely by mail. Uh, Colorado and Utah uh, are examples of that. And I, you know, you haven't seen any uh, significant challenges, any hay being made by either side of of the aisle in those states. Because I think if you're looking at it in a straightforward manner, you see that it's efficient. It saves the states and the counties money. It gives the voters the opportunity to take time with their ballot without feeling pressure that, you know, they're making the line long for those behind them. Uh, You know, they can they can Google and do research before they you know pick their favorite candidate. You know, it is a method of voting um, that people should truly consider, uh, you know, if they fall within, uh, you know, one of these four definitions. And as I as I mentioned before. It's up to the voter to determine whether or not they fit one of those four categories. Uh, and my office simply has to process that application. Is there any indication that there will be further legal action as a result of this Supreme Court 
or I should say, actually, are are you aware of any further legal action that will develop as a result of this Supreme Court ruling, or is or are we done with this? Is this is this the final resolution? So I think this is the end as it relates to this particular case. But you got to remember that there is an entirely separate case uh, at the federal court level, and so a West Texas judge. Um, very recently ruled that this over 65 piece around eligibility is discrimination. It creates two classes of voters and gives one class a right that the other doesn't have. And as a protected class, you know, age is something that you, you can't discriminate against unless there is a very, very specific and strong government purpose uh, for doing that. And so that's making its way through the courts as well. Again, the the folks who were in favor of allowing more people to vote by mail won uh, at the at the district court level. It's now going to the Fifth Circuit, um, and it may or may not find its way to the Supreme Court of the United States. At at this stage, your office is fully prepared to move forward with processing the request of a constituent who checks the disability box and request a mail-in ballot? You know, we are thinking about uh, the possibility that there are going to be, you know, dramatically higher numbers of mail-in ballot requests and ultimately mail-in ballots cast. We still need to scale up to accommodate that. For the July runoffs, we've, we've already seen increased numbers of voters requesting those ballots, and we've mailed those out to people who've requested them, as well as every single voter in Harris County who's 65 or above. Uh, And so we have to prepare ourselves to process those when they come back. And we're still working on that. In July, we expect that number to be a somewhat reasonable number. Just, you know, looking historically, a a primary runoff election has never exceeded 10% turnout in, in recent Harris County history. Um, and so while, you know, while we would love more people to be voting, we're not expecting a, a dramatically high number of, of, of folks to participate in July just based on his history. And I suppose with what's going on in the world today, a primary election's probably not on the forefront of everybody's mind. Yeah, I think people are really primed up to vote in November. And so, you know, that's going to be massive. Um, I expect that to be the highest turnout in Harris County history. And so we have a lot of work to do to be prepared. Um, but I'm very confident uh, in my team, both the, the, the entire staff um, that Dr. Diane Troutman left behind, who have been phenomenal and who are already doing fantastic work, but are also additional folks who I'm bringing to the table who are really passionate about this issue. Allowing Harris County residents to exercise uh, this most fundamental right to vote and to do so safely, to do so conveniently, and to do so with the peace of mind that their vote is going to be counted. Do you feel confident that Harris County and specifically your office will have all the necessary resources to effectively execute a election in November and process all requested ballot types, whether they're mail-in voting, absentee, uh, an ample enough of precincts operating 
to accommodate what is predicted to be a historic voter turnout? Yes, we have to. And we're going to rise to the occasion. Um, again, we're we're just you know getting you know our boots on the ground um, as it relates to my administration. Um, but there's already been a lot of hard work gearing towards G- July and November, and we're going to assess you know our needs as it relates to November, especially around doing it safely for those who are going to vote in person and doing it efficiently for those who are going to vote by mail so that we can process those votes and have them ready to report on election day. Not to move away from the mail-in vote at this time, and the reason I want to talk through this is it is a national conversation at the moment. Clearly, Donald Trump is tweeting about it constantly, claiming that there are groups of young people running all over the country stealing ballots out of mailboxes, collecting them and voting, you know, fraudulently. Is there any data to support that statement? Uh, in short, no. And I would say that it's a, a bit hypocritical for some folks who during this time of, of COVID-19 and the global pandemic, who have suggested that it might be okay for us to sacrifice the lives of, of 10% of our population to save the economy of this country. And then who on the other side, sort of in this, this the same breath, would say if there are you know 10 people who who break this law out of 28 million, that we should shut down that entire practice, but you know, because of the 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 criticality of those those 10 votes or what have you. It's just a really silly uh, imbalance. Again, across the country, not just in Texas. There, there are very, 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 very few cases of, of voter fraud. And just imagine, uh, you know, you were a, a teenager once, so was I. Uh, imagine if you and your teenage buddies thought, we're going to steal this neighborhood's entire set of elections. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, how effective do you think that, uh, that mission would be? Yeah. Uh, like it's, it's, it, it, it gets to the level of absurdity. And, and look, fraud is something I take very seriously as a, as a lawyer. But as you think through this, it's just it's quite out there. Yeah, I don't know many teenagers who aren't of voting age who even honestly pay much attention to elections at all, to be honest with you. Yeah, we're trying hard enough to get them to vote for themselves. <laughs> this right? is true. Right. Hey, let's talk just a little bit about rural Texas, because as it as Democrats, a lot of times our rural communities seem to be overlooked. I've got a good friend who's the Smith County, uh, Texas Democratic chair. And unfortunately, uh, a couple of years ago, had to close the office out there in Tyler because there just wasn't the resources to to deal with that uh, and support that office. Do you think that we, moving forward, can begin to invest more into our rural communities? Is there a plan for that as far as the state party is concerned? We're hiring, we're planning, the the party is planning to hire the most robust organizing staff uh, that we've ever seen in Texas. The the plan, as I uh, understand it, is to have upwards of a thousand organizers come November of 2020. But the very first hire in terms of organizing, was the West Texas organizer. So the very first place we put anybody was in Lubbock and Amarillo. East Texas, the Panhandle, 
West Texas. There's so much space, as we all know, uh, around this, this great state. And we will be making sure that we're able to reach everybody, both in person uh, and digitally. I know that there is a digital divide where many folks in rural areas do not have as great access you know, to internet and so forth. But because of how huge this space is, it's really important that we connect online. Well, Chris, I have to say, you know, you, you've been ge- very generous with your time here with me today on Breaking Protocol. And, and I'm, I'm honored that you allowed me to have the first word with the new Harris County clerk. Congratulations again on that. I always like to uh, wrap up with just one final question. And based on your background and things that I've read about you, you at a very young age indicated to your father— I read this in an interview. You had indicated to your father that one day you'd like to be the president of the United States. So with that said, when are we going to see Chris Hollins on a ballot? I'll tell you this. I, I, I might have said that, but I also told him I was going to be a fireman, an astronaut, <laughs> a lawyer. Uh, and so I'm, I guess I'm just checking those things off one by one. I, I never told him I'd be county clerk, but, but here we are. You know, I'm going to be 100% focused on this role uh, through 2020. Um, and then I'm going to be returning to private practice. I have a son due in early July. Uh, and we have a three and a half year old daughter, Vivian. And, you know, I was originally, as of two weeks ago, planning to take off the entire month of July. And now, guess what? I have a runoff election to administer. And so, you know, at the end of this year, definitely going to take some time with my family, going to get back to uh, my law practice and other entrepreneurial ventures I have going. Um, but public service, again, is very important to me. And so, um, and so I, I do look forward to, to serving the residents of Harris County and the people of Texas you know, as much as they'll have me. Harris County is fortunate to have you. Texas is fortunate to have you. And thank you so much for your time with me today. I'm honored and thrilled, and I know our listeners got a lot out of our conversation. I would like to thank the listeners who've taken the time to be with us, Chris Hollins, the new Harris County clerk, for being part of Breaking Protocol with Bob Sadowake. Please click and subscribe to receive notification of our future podcast. And if you haven't had an opportunity to read my book, Breaking Protocol, Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy. It is available from your favorite online retailer, or you can download it to your Kindle, tablet, or smartphone. Thank you once again for joining us. Have a beautiful day and many blessings. Blessings.